I had gotten used to the bigger pulpit at the other location, so we have to make space here. But welcome and good morning, everyone. So this morning, we are um, doing a special sermon for those of you that are visiting us uh, or recently joining us. We uh, are going through the book of uh, Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, as uh, some of us call it, in the Old Testament. And um, Brother Eric preached last week on the beginning of chapter 3, which is basically the, the concluding uh, portion, the concluding chapter of the book of Habakkuk. We're taking a small break from that. Otherwise, we have gone um, through each book, verse by verse. Today, we're taking a break. The reason is, today is an anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. So we're going to uh, learn, we're going to be reminded of what that means. And we're going to be edified by the Word of God and how uh, Reformation can be applied to us today, this very day, based on what the Lord has providentially done in the past. Okay, so today uh, we're going to do a review of what the Reformation was, uh, what it still is, and how it applies to our lives. I picked a main text in Scripture that I'm going to uh, preach from, and then we're going to look at different aspects of uh, the history of the Reformation, the theological implications of the Reformation, and then the personal implication. How does that apply to me, to you, in this very day? Uh, so with that, let us stand for the reading of God's Word as we read this morning's passage. We are reading from Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And the inerrant word of God reads as follows. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed, from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you so much for your word, for your word indeed is truth, for your word is the lamp unto our feet. Lord, for by your word we are judged, for by your word we are given what is required of us. For by your word it's like a mirror that reflects who we are, and yet it tells us who you are, about your holiness, about your son Jesus coming and living a perfect life that we can never live by him taking our place, by dying in our place, and yet rising again. May we be reminded of those truths today in that our being right with you, our justification happens by faith in Christ. May those truths be implanted in our minds and hearts this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So I titled today's sermon, The Separation of Reformation. Justification by faith. So a quick word, what is the Reformation and why should we dedicate a sermon to it today? Many times we get in the habit of doing things in our daily lives, uh, whether it is uh, habits, uh, little rituals that we may uh, do through our, our week, our day, our month. And many times it is not apparent, like, wait a minute, let me stop and think, why did I start doing this? Whether it's a particular routine, whether it's an exercise routine, a diet routine, whatever it is. And 
we should apply that same pause and that question to who are we? Why are we Christians? Why are we Protestants? Specifically, why do we call ourselves Acts Reformed Church? Like, how do we end up here? Right? So today, hopefully, we can reflect upon that in why we hold to a Reformed understanding of God's Word and why are we not some other denomination or other tradition? Hopefully today we can see a clear picture. And maybe if you have questions of why we name ourselves that or why do we abide by Scripture, hopefully this will help you to understand why that is. There are entire volumes, bookshelves, bookcases, perhaps even libraries filled as to what the Protestant Reformation is. But at the end of the day, it boils down to this. If there's one thing we should take away from what we hear today and from the Reformation itself, what should it be? That is the theme of today. That justification, being made right before God, is by faith. So the Reformation then implies a certain type of separation, a breaking away from, and coming back to what is orthodox, what is straight. A good way to think about this in practical matters is if all of us have at some point driven a car or heard that the car needs realignment, you would know that as you're driving and you let your steering wheel go, the car starts veering, right? And if you don't intercede and get it back into the right path, you're going to derail. You're going to go and crash. You're going to go off the, off the road, right? Likewise, it is the concept of spiritual reforma uh, reformation. Sinfulness, disobedience to God's word, will make, will make our spiritual wheels veer to the left, to the right. And if we don't realize that, our natural tendency is going to be to keep going astray, to keep turning from the correct path that God calls us to. In that, then, we must realign, or we must reform, if you will, to come back to orthodoxy, to that which is right. So today we will see the separation of Reformation in three main points. First, we're going to look at the historical, that is, the separation from apostasy. Secondly, we're going to look at the theological, that is, we are justified by faith. We're going to see what that means. And thirdly, we're going to see the practical, our need to reform, our personal accountability to reform. So let us dig right through it. Historical, the separation from apostasy. What does apostasy mean? We hear this sometimes, like, oh, you're an apostate or you're, you've apostatized. What does that mean? Apostasy comes from the Greek word apostasia. It is a defection, an abandonment, a turning away from a particular conviction. In this case, we're talking about a particular worldview, a religious conviction. At some point, someone was orthodox, meaning they were straight, they were right, they were true, and now have gone apostate, have deviated, abandoning the straight path. Do we see this in Scripture? You bet. And the constant theme of Scripture is for us to give back to what God has ordained to what God has required of us. We've seen it when Moses went to Mount Zion, right? He, he left his brother in charge of 
of the shop, if you will. And what happened when he came back? Had they remained in the straight path? No, they had apostatized, right? We see that as early as back then. Let us point, though, to a later example in the New Testament, the book of Galatians, chapter 1. Let us look at verses 6 through 8. This is Paul writing. Right as soon as he writes an introduction, he gets right to the crux of the matter, and he says this. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you into the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. That is harsh language, my friends. And the Apostle Paul is mincing no words to tell the Galatians, who, by the way, he's addressing them as brothers. He's addressing the church in Galatia. And what is he doing? He's telling them, my brothers, my sisters, you are discerning Christ. You are turning to a counterfeit gospel. Those that are coming into the church and presenting you with these false ideas, he says, be careful. And he even goes further. He says, even if you have an appearance of an angel teaching you a gospel that is not the one we've learned, let him be anathema. Let him go to the deepest parts of hell. That's the words that the Apostle Paul uses. My friends, if the church at Galatia was in danger of apostasy, may God have mercy on us. Are we in danger of apostasy? We should always be on guard as the devil is like a roaring lion. It's out there seeking to see who can devour. So what was causing the going away of the true faith in the case of the Galatians? Paul goes into depth in the book of Galatians and basically boils down to this. They were putting into question whether someone is justified by faith alone or whether you need to add works to that. Okay? So there we see that the very idea that sparked the Protestant Reformation has been a constant theme. Are we justified by works or are we justified by faith alone? Now, historically, the Roman Catholic Church in the time of leading up to Martin Luther, had apostatized. Martin Luther was a, a monk who was alive at that time. And although God had already used men prior to Martin Luther in order to get his church ready for a reformation, it was not until Martin Luther sparked the official reformation movement that it grew into a momentum that we see in history and that to some extent we see today. Men like John Wycliffe and John Huss had come before Luther. And Luther was, in some instances, accused of heresy by the Roman Catholic Church because he was identifying with the teachings of his predecessors. Now, there's so much to say about that. I know some of you brothers are into the history of the Reformation. 
uh, and you're thinking, oh, you should have mentioned this and that and the other. But my brothers, we need to be brief and get to the point, right? We can obviously talk about more details uh, at our fellowship lunch or uh, during our fellowship in the week. But let us summarize this way. So Martin Luther, a monk at the time of the Reformation, wrote what we refer to as the 95 Theses. And he nailed that to the door of the church in Wittenberg in October 31st of 1517. That is just over 500 years. Recently, we celebrated the 500th year anniversary of that. So that helped to kick off what we now know as the Reformation movement, the Protestant Reformation. And the 95 Theses, what is that? It's basically a list of 95 statements that questioned or challenged the beliefs and the practices of the Roman Catholic Church. What does it mean when we see the memes and the pictures of Luther nailing that to, to the church door? Now, truth be told, as Protestants, we might be tempted to over-dramatize what, what happened, to make it all dramatical. But we should know that during those times, when people did that, it was basically like posting on a bulletin board, like if we have maybe something similar to a bulletin board here, and you put a post on there so that others can see it. And you're basically saying, hey, everyone, look, this is what I think, and I, I want to engage you guys. W what do you think about that? What is our modern version of that? You go on your social media, you put a, a post, and then all of a sudden somebody else shares it, People like it, people dislike it, you get hecklers in there, and all of a sudden you got something that is snowballing, right? So that was the idea. Now, what had troubled Luther was that the Roman Catholic Church, as he examined scripture, had apostatized, had veered off the straight path, and they were preaching another gospel. This included Luther's disapproval of many of the teachings and the practices of the Roman Church, and he could not hide the fact that they were not teaching justification by faith, but rather by other means. Specifically, he could not accept the practice of the selling of indulgences. That's sort of what one of the main aspects that really drove him to, to basically write this thesis. Indulgences, what are those? Basically, when a loved one dies, the Roman Catholic belief, even to this day, if you talk to Roman Catholics, they have this belief that their loved one may be in purgatory. That means in the state of spiritual limbo, if you will. And the belief back then was being taught that if you are in doubt or more assuredly your loved one is in, in spiritual limbo and purgatory, you would be able to offer indulgences. That is, you can pay the church and they'll work their magic and they'll be able to push their loved one over up into heaven. Is that biblical? No, my brothers and sisters, that is, her is heresy, is damnable heresy. One of the proponents of that at the time, Johann Tetzel, was a preacher of indulgences, and he was credited with, we now find it funny, but true saying back then, and he said, when a penny in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs, right? They even had political models back then. So Martin Luther, therefore, was greatly troubled about that and many other teachings. 
and he put together the list of 95 disagreements or challenges or concerns in regards to the church that he belonged to. These copies, as the printing press was just uh, coming available, were distributed within two weeks throughout Germany and within two months throughout Europe. Now note this. For many commentaries I've heard, it is said that Martin Luther did not want to start a controversy. He genuinely wanted to engage his fellow brothers and sisters to talk about these matters that he was highly grieved about and concerned. But as you will, his post on Twitter went viral. And all of a sudden, there was no holding him back. So then, he was able to bring the kickoff of this movement that is now known as the Protestant Reformation, which opposed the other gospel that was being taught and practiced, a false gospel. So that sort of takes care of a snapshot of the historical. Now let's get to the theological, which is justification by faith alone. And let us go back to our text that we are emphasizing today. In this text, Paul mentions, Romans 1.16, that he's not ashamed of the gospel. So I guess a first question for us, my brothers and sisters, are you afraid of the gospel? Are you ashamed of the gospel? Are you ashamed to stand up for what the truths of the gospel are? If we are honest, all of us at some point have been, to some extent or another, afraid to speak or to stand up for the gospel. Now that's a whole another topic, but since that's in our, our, uh, our text here, let us reflect on that. But more specifically now, we're told here that the gospel is the power of God. The gospel is not the power of something we do, not the power of how good of a person you are, not the power of how much charity you could do or how many homeless outreaches we do or how many orphans we helped. Now, should we do that? Absolutely, we should. But that is not the power of God in the gospel. That is an outcome of who Christ has made us into. It is not the power of a religious organization, nor the power of a priest or a pastor. The gospel is the power of God to save those who believe. That is who God is. That is the power that God has, the power of the gospel, the power of God. Secondly, we are told that the gospel is what reveals the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God, not the righteousness of men, not the righteousness of good deeds, not the righteousness of empty rituals, but the righteousness of God. So the gospel is the power of God to save those who believe, and it reveals the righteousness of God. Now, my friends, did you know, or if you know, let me remind you, that unless you have the righteousness of Almighty God, you will not be able to enter God's kingdom. Unless you have God's righteousness, you are lost. 
Now immediately, if we realize what that means, you may say, well, wait a minute. I mean, I know I'm not perfect. And to obtain the righteousness of God, that's impossible. You are right, my friend. You are correct. But oh, to those who believe, God justifies them by his righteousness. Isn't that great news? Philippians 3.9, which again, this is a verse I constantly bring up. We just went through the book of Galatians. I mean, Philippians. Galatians 3.9, what does Paul say as he is examining all that he has gained from his knowledge and his reputation as a Pharisee of Pharisees? In that context, Paul says the following, Philippians 3.9, that he wants to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on Faith, right? Going back to our main text, it says that the righteous shall live by faith. We're going through Habakkuk right now. That's where that verse comes from, from the second chapter of Habakkuk. In the midst of tribulations, trials, judgment, punishment, disobedience, Habakkuk tells us that the righteous shall live by faith. As Paul expands upon that in the New Testament, it becomes clear that that faith we should live by, it's not just faith by thinking that things are going to be okay. No, things may actually get worse. But rather that we are to live in faith in Christ, in what Christ has done, in the hope of the gospel, in the redemption that is in the risen Christ. So that righteousness is not our own, it's the righteousness of Christ. John Bunyan puts it this way, and I quote, he says, Our sins, when laid upon Christ, were yet personally ours, not his. So his righteousness, when put upon us, is yet personally his, not ours. So we who believe are found with the righteousness of Christ. Yes, that is great news, my friends. Yes, the righteousness of Christ. We have no righteousness. So it is on that monumental truth then that if we take God's word as the absolute standard, if we abide by sola scriptura, by scripture alone as the ultimate standard, not what the pastor says, not what the priest says, not what the religious group says, no, scripture alone, then we must understand that justification must be by faith alone, through Christ alone, by grace alone, to the glory of God alone. Amen. That is a summary of the five solas that came from the Reformation. As they were steering off, going off the rails, coming back and summarized in the five solas. The one we're focusing on today is obviously justification. Now, just to clarify, hopefully we leave not in doubt of what we mean by justification. Justification is a sinner being declared righteous before a holy God. That's what justification means, biblically speaking. This reminds us of the story of the self-righteous lawyer that approached Jesus and asked him, Lord, what, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus proceeds to tell him, well, you know, you're, you're a lawyer. Basically, you, you should know the law. You shall love God, right, with, with your whole being, 
mind, soul, strength. And you should love your neighbor as yourself. And then we see in Luke 10.29 the response of the lawyer, what he said. It says this, But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Trying to play it off. This man attempted to make himself righteous before Almighty God. Finding excuses. Maybe he's saying, well, I'm not that bad. Like, okay, fine, who's my neighbor? Let us take a look at Romans 4, 5. It says, And the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. If we skip to Romans 4, 25, it says, who was delivered, that means Jesus, was delivered up for our trespasses and raised up for our justification. That's a quick reference. One more reference here. The 1689 Confession of Faith that we abide by. Chapter 11, paragraph 2 says, Faith that receives and rests on Christ as his righteousness is the only instrument of justification. Yet, it does not occur by itself in the person justified, but it is always accompanied by every other saving grace. It is not a dead faith, but works through love. Right? And we recognize there the reference to James chapter 2. So then, my brothers and sisters, with that said, can we dare then to say, to reflect that maybe at times we make Take the attitude of seeking to justify ourselves. We may say, oh no, those Roman Catholics, or those cults, or oh, that legalistic church. But what about us? Perhaps in the form of, well, you know, yeah, I, I have my faults, but I also do good things. Like the, the scale could balance out in my favor. I volunteer, I mean, I even share the gospel. Or maybe we could be in the attitude of, yes, you know, I, I acknowledge I'm a sinner. Yes, I, I sin. But if you only knew, it's because of my spouse, because of my kids, because of my work, because of fill in the blank, whoever you don't like, politicians, you name it. Right? Or we could say, oh, I'm actually a good person. My good deeds will for sure outweigh my bad deeds. My friends, let us repent of those types of positions where we are seeking to justify ourselves like the self-righteous lawyer was doing in front of Almighty Jesus, God in flesh. Instead, let us fall upon the mercy of God to trust in the perfect work of Christ so that His righteousness may be credited to us. So that he may be our substitute for the perfection that we need and hence be justified by faith alone in Christ alone. You tracking with me? Thirdly, the practical. It's a good segue here. How does it get even more practical, more personal to us? Our need to reform. The reformation causes separation. 
hence the title of the, the message today. But what type of separation did Luther's kickoff of the Reformation cause? Well, it caused separation from apostasy, separation from error, separation from heresy, from a fake gospel. After Luther, many other reformers came that also played a big role in the Protestant Reformation. Tyndale, Calvin, right? So let us ask ourselves, as a church community, what does it mean to reform ourselves? Right? Obviously, we hold to a reformed view of Scripture, the sovereignty of God, the absolute authority of Scripture. Right? Yes, we, we abide by that, absolutely. But as a church community, let us think if we were to reflect upon what is orthodox, what is correct in the eyes of Scripture, in the eyes of God, as we saw in the book of Galatians, that Paul was calling them to return to the gospel. What if Martin Luther was alive today, my brothers and sisters, and he visited the Protestant churches, would he write a thesis on those? And if so, how long would it be? Right? Would we be hit by that and be called out? Probably. Right? That's, that's humbling. And yet the key of a continuously reforming attitude is that we always have to come back to Scripture. Scripture. What does the Scripture say? How is this apparent in our current culture? Well, there are plenty of things out there that are ungodly and that the culture is following. Critical race theory, social justice, the championing of unconstitutional laws that are being pushed to affect our families, our churches. This idea of gender theory, which is an abomination to the creation of God. We learned about that today in our Sunday school. Right? The, the image of God, what does it mean to be image bearers of God? It's being corrupted. Perhaps uh, adopting marketing schemes so that we can have more numbers in our church. Right? The list could go on. Are we preaching the gospel or are we turning to approve of other things or flirt with all these unbiblical ideas so that we may be justified before men? We must stop ourselves from following any of the garbage that our current culture is wanting to not only champion, but wanting us to celebrate with them. They're basically, in large part, the abominations of Romans chapter 1. Those that suppress the truth of God and are given over into a reprobate mind, specifically called out on there, is the sinfulness of twisting sexuality. So as a church community, may God have mercy on us to reform from that, to constantly be reminded of what the scripture says so that we see everything through the lens of a biblical worldview. Now, what about us individuals? Right? That's as a church community, but we still need to get to the individual. 
Bottom line is we need to repent of personal sin. Repent constantly and to reform ourselves into a biblical comportation, a biblical understanding of what God requires from us in our personal lives. Not blaming others. Oh, you know, it's my spouse. She, she just I can't handle it. She, she just drives me, you know, or my kids or my coworker, etc., etc. Now, may that be true? Yes. We, we live among sinners. We live in a fallen world. Yes, absolutely. And we should biblically approach those things and stand against unrighteousness. Yes. But ultimately, God will deal with them. We are called to start with us. To be reformed, to be called back to a biblical character, to a biblical understanding of what God requires of us so that we may live accordingly. It starts with us. Let us take a quick look at Luke 18, 9 through 14. Talking about Jesus, it says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treating others with contempt. Two men went up the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a day. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. My friends, am I or are you trying to justify yourself before God? By pointing to your own goodness or pointing to the flaws of others? If we're doing that, my friends, we are no better than the Pharisee that went to his house that day unjustified. So then our personal reformation must separate us from the way the world thinks. Blaming others. I'm a good person. God will give me a pass. We must bring our minds and our hearts in perpetual repentance and fall on the mercy of God. As that tax collector who admitted his sin and said nothing else but Lord have mercy on a sinner. And then we'll be justified by faith in Christ. Lastly, some, some reflections this Reformation Day. First, Reformation separates us from apostasy, separates us from error. Justification has been and will always be by grace through faith alone. In Christ alone. To the glory of God alone. The righteousness of God is manifested in salvation, not our righteousness. We bring nothing to the table other than our filthiness and our disobedience, our rebellion. 
It is not the righteousness of men. We have none. It is the righteousness of Christ. The righteousness of God is revealed. Secondly, Reformation separates us from what we may hold dear. Separates us from our idols. Separates us from our sin. From the wish to be respected by men. From the comforts of life. From the lifestyle of sinful habits. Reforming then is not free. It comes at a cost. Be reminded that those who stood on the word of God, Luther included, had a lot to lose. Practically speaking, had a lot to lose. But they knew that they would gain infinitely more if they stood on what God had to say. They could lose on this earth, but they had infinite gain in the kingdom of God. We see that nearly four years after Luther posted his thesis, that he himself came before Charles V and was confronted and interrogated and asked to recant or to basically admit that his writings, by that point he had now more writings, were in error. Like, come on, like, you're going to admit that you were in error, right? His response was the speech that officially not started, but officially confirmed that the Reformation had indeed gained momentum into what we look back to and realize that it was the start of the Reformation movement. As he was given a chance to recant, instead, he famously said as follows, I quote, I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no other. So help me, God. We see there the conviction of a godly man standing on God's word, knowing that everything is at stake by him taking that position. We go back to my first question. My brothers, my sisters, are you ashamed of the gospel? What can that cost you? Mocking? Maybe your reputation? That people, ah, oh, you're one of those people. The godly men and women whose truths come from scripture tells us that they had everything to lose. And yet, they stood on God's word. So may our confession as Christians, may your confession as a follower of Christ, would be a bold one, proclaiming the gospel, not following the trends of this wicked and evil generation. Reforming is not free, my friends. It is not cheap for the Christian. If it is costing us nothing, we might want to think about our proclamation of faith. Lastly, here's the ultimate hope. Reformation unites us. doesn't separate us. Reformation unites us with Christ. We can rest in the fact that our justification is by faith in a perfect mediator that cannot fail. We are united to God in Christ. 
to reforming ourselves. I will close with Romans 3, verses 21 to 27. It says as follows. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation for by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. To this we say amen. And now I will pray that God would give us boldness to have personal reformation in our lives. And that we would repent of sin, personal sin, not blame others. It, it'll do no good if our political convictions are realized, if our team wins, if you fill in the blank, you get whatever you want, and you still are an irresponsible, ungodly man or woman in your home. May we repent of our personal sins, may we reform, and we come back to the Word of God so that that can be the sole authority for our belief and our practice as we follow after Christ. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for a reminder of the importance of the Reformation movement and what that means for us today. Lord, may, we, may you remind us that we can never be made right in your sight by anything we do. But rather, we are made right only by perfection, the perfection of Christ. Give us that boldness, Lord, to proclaim that truth and to believe it. Lord, if we are doubtful or do not know whether we are known by Christ or whether we are saved, for those, Lord, may you give them, may you grant them repentance. May you call them, may you draw them to yourself that they would see the beauty of Christ and that the gospel may not be foolishness to them so that they may embrace Christ for he truly is the savior of the ungodly, of those who believe. We ask this now in the power of the Holy Spirit and through the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.